0: Well, good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to preach to you. Um, Hello, Sebastian. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to be in James. I know many of you have been enjoying your study of this book as you've been gathering together as men and women to look at it uh, in our adult Bible study time We're going to James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18 this morning. And before we begin, I'm going to ask the Lord to go before us as we gather around his word. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity and the privilege to be here this morning. When we think of what we deserve, Lord, it's not this. It's not to be gathered with your people, having your spirit in us, celebrating Jesus, our Savior, around your word, receiving, learning, growing. We don't deserve any of these, Lord. We receive them as a gift, as a part of our gospel inheritance. And we thank you, Lord, that we can learn from what you have to say to us. Lord, speak to us this morning. That's our prayer. And pray for each one of us here that you give us eyes to see the things that you want us to see from this passage, the things that James proclaimed many years ago and is still proclaiming now through your Holy Spirit. And I just pray that you would go before me to allow me to speak your truth, and to encourage your people. We thank you for this opportunity. We just pray for our time together in your word this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, James chapter 1, I want to begin this morning with a question, and it's how do you respond to trials? When bad things happen to you, when, when God puts a circumstance in your life that is very hard, how do you respond? What do you think about? What do you do? How would you respond as you're sitting in the doctor's office and he comes in and you can tell the, good, the news is not good and very reluctantly he tells you that you have a form of cancer which, for which there's no cure and at best you have about three months to live. So Amen. <laughs> How would you respond? How would you respond as as your boss comes into the office for the company that you've given 15 years of your life to and he tells you, you're no longer working here. And now you're on, on the street and you're looking for your next paycheck and you don't know where it's going to come from. How would you respond to the child that you've been raising and growing and investing so much time and love into when many years later he comes to you and he says, all the things that you taught me, all the things that you gave me, I reject them all. I don't want any part of what you believe or what you're about and I'm, we're, we're basically through. How do you respond when you're in the throes of depression and despair and life seems very, very overwhelming? How do you respond as a mom when you're, you're consumed with the home, jobs never stop, diapers never go away and, and you don't know where you're going to get your next hours worth of energy from? How do we respond? See, I know that many of us are in these kinds of situations. There's many of us in this room that right now we are experiencing trials. We're experiencing difficult circumstances that God has placed into our lives at this very moment. And some of us are just a matter of weeks, hours, years away from a very intense kind of testing and trial that may be far worse than any of this. see, James was writing to people just like us. He was writing to a group of people who were experiencing some of the most trying times of their life. These were people who had been, had been involved in such intense persecution that they had been, been basically just dispersed throughout the, the far reaches of the world. And now they, were, they had left home and land and family and they were out, a minority among unbelieving Gentiles, And even more than that, they were a minority within a minority because among these Jews, they had chosen to follow Jesus Christ. And they were experiencing intense persecutions, intense trials. Not only were they experiencing that kind of intense trial for being Jewish, for following Jesus, for being a minority, for being the poor of the poor socially, financially, in every way, but they were experiencing the very things that that you and I are experiencing. Loss of job, medical problems, children in the home who were rebelling family and friends who were forsaking and rejecting them feelings of loneliness despair just just intense types of persecutions trial circumstances and James is writing to these people but he's writing to people that he loves and that he is con- convinced that God loves and his message is brothers my beloved brothers, I want you to understand what God is doing. When you are in the middle of a trial, when you, are, when you are bearing up under the most intense kinds of trials and circumstances, I want you to understand what's going on. I want you to understand what God is doing. And I know that you are going to be tempted to think certain ways. I know that you're going to be disoriented and dizzy and saying, what's going on here? How am I to regard or, or, or to understand and, and to deal with these things? And I want you to understand that God is doing an amazing work. And that's what James is doing through chapter 1. He starts in verse 2. And he says, Count it all joy, my brothers. I'm not saying the trials are easy. I'm not, I'm not saying put a smile on your face because the world's a happy place. I'm telling you, uh, the trials are very hard. They're intense. But I want you to understand them for what they are. And I want you to embrace them for the purpose that God wants them to serve in your life. You See, God, he, he's saying to these, these believers and to us this morning, God has taken you If you're his child, he's taken you and he's given birth to you. He's fathered you and he's taking you from point A to point B. And part of that is a road that he is planting, perfectly planting trials and difficulties in your way so that through them, you will pass through them and see amazing change and transformation on the other side. He's saying, understand what trials are doing. They are producing All sorts of good things in your life. They are bringing intense good to you. He sums it up in verse 12 Blessed is the man. How happy is the one who remains steadfast under trial. The best place that you can be, my brothers, James is saying, is as you go through those trials to endure under them, to embrace them, to to travel the full distance of them. Because he says, when you've done that, when you've stood the test, you will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James knows that we fail trials. James knows that we have a hard time dealing with them. James wants to give us some perspective. And what he does in verses 13 to 18 is he he begins to address some of the things that we often believe and and that are untrue and he begins to try to, to seek to correct our understanding to help us to understand trials but not only that to help us to get to a place where we can really truly embrace them. And make them our friends, to receive them as the gifts that they are. Let's read the passage together. He says, Let no one, when he is being tested, say, I am being tempted by God, for God is unable to be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own selfish desires. Then... After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is brought to completion, brings forth death. Stop being deceived, my beloved brothers. All good, thing, all good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Having willed it, he brought us forth by means of the word of truth in order that we might be a kind of first fruits from among his creation." James wants us to understand trials. He wants us to get a handle on them. And so he's going to give us four truths. Four truths to help us to understand and to embrace our trials. He's not saying they're easy, but he's saying, look, I want to give you some perspective. I want you to get to a place where you can grab onto them and say, I understand what you're doing in my life. I understand, Lord, why you've put this in my life. And I will embrace it. I will receive it. And I will give thanks. And I will understand it. And the first truth is found in verse 13. During times of trial, James wants you to believe, he wants you to remember this, that you will never be tempted by God to sin. When you're in the most difficult time of your life, when you're experiencing very hard circumstances, you will never be tempted by God to sin. Look at verse 13. He says, Let no one, when he is being tested, say, I am being tempted by God, for God is unable to be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. You see, James knows that Often, when trials come upon us, we fail. We, we, we react wrong. We, we, we get overwhelmed and we begin to doubt God's character. And often, we can begin to blame God, not only for the trial, but for our response. We can say, how could you give me this? And it's your fault that I'm doing this, that I'm responding in this way. In fact, this is our very sin nature. This is at the very core of who we are as sinful people. Whenever we are guilty Whenever we fall, whenever we fail, whenever we sin, we immediately begin to want to shift that blame to something else and on someone else. And we play the blame game. Often we blame other people. This person, because he was in my life, this is why I did this. Or our environment, the way we were brought up, where we grew up, what we were exposed to. Our circumstances. Often the very trial itself. Or sometimes timing. Lord, why did you have to do this to me now? If you weren't testing me now, if this had come later, I wasn't ready for this. Often we can blame Satan. He's the one, Lord, that has made me do this. His power is too great for me. I can't resist the evil one. Often we can even blame the weather. Two prominent theologians of my era um, Convinced millions of us to blame it on the rain. In fact, I'm going to read from one of their musical commentaries. Um, here's, here's what they sing. Got to blame it on something. Got to blame it on something. Blame it on the rain that was falling, falling. Blame it on the stars that did shine at night. Whatever you do, don't put the blame on you. Blame it on the rain. Yeah, yeah. love those pictures. You see, the problem is, whenever we blame anything or anyone other than ourselves, what we're really doing, what we're really doing is we're blaming God. We are blaming God. And often in the midst of trials, when we're experiencing the most difficult things that that we could encounter, when when God has put a hardship in our life, difficult circumstances, we're we're so disoriented that we can even go so far as to, to blame Him directly to blame him directly. What what we're really saying sometimes, we're saying, God, you did this, you allowed this, you put this trial in my life and made my circumstances so hard that I sinned. This is your fault, Lord. You are out to get me. Why are you doing this to me? We see this in the first three chapters of the Bible. Adam and Eve were given a test. They were tried by God to see what they would do. Would they be true to their creator or would they forsake him? It says when, when Adam had taken of the fruit he said in response to God the woman that you gave me to be with me she gave me of the fruit and I ate and even the, and even the woman when questioned by God said this, this serpent who you created and made a, able to talk and put in the garden he's the one that deceived me and I ate you see there was no receiving the blame there was, there was this doubting of God there was this questioning of God and James says brothers and sisters when you are in a trial when you're experiencing something really hard when God has put something in your path that you really don't want it's the last thing that you would have chosen he's saying don't don't fall into the trap of questioning God don't, don't doubt him don't think that he's against you he is not against you he is for you and his goal is to take you through the trial And James begins to help us to understand that in in verse 13. He says, Let no one, when he is being tested, say, I am being tempted by God. And that word for testing and tempting is the same word. It's perosmos in the Greek. See, on one hand, it can mean trial, a test. It can be a positive thing, or it can mean a temptation. In the positive sense, it speaks of the way that God views our difficulties. See, as far as God is concerned, they are always a trial. They are always a test. They are never a temptation. And God, what He is doing, what He is seeking to do when He puts difficult things in your life, is is He's seeking to do so much good to you and through you. He's, He's bringing you along from that point A to point B. He's taking you on that journey to make you what you weren't. And it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. And through the test, He's seeking to reveal and develop your character, your person. But that same word can, when in the context of our own sinful flesh, in the context of Satan who seeks to trip us up, can mean to entice to sin, to solicit to evil. And when we look at our trials and we begin to run away from them, then they become to us an opportunity to be tempted. An opportunity that that that, that where we are tempting ourselves. We are tempted to run away from the very good trial that God has for us. John MacArthur says the same word in noun and verb form is used for both ideas because the primary difference is not in the perasmas itself, but in the person's response. If a believer responds faith in faithful obedience to God's word, he successfully endures a trial. If he succumbs to it in the flesh, doubting God and disobeying, he is tempted to sin. Right response leads to spiritual endurance, righteousness, wisdom, and other blessings, as as James shows us in the first few verses. But wrong response leads to sin and to death. You see, James wants to make it clear that when it comes to our trials, that's what they are to God. They are a good thing. They're something that God is using to do infinite good to us. And, And we see this example in Matthew 4. You see, Jesus... Jesus, after he was baptized and received the Holy Spirit, it says he was led out by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. You see, for God, it was an opportunity to prove Jesus' worthiness to be the Lamb who, of God who would take away the sin of the world. It was to, it was to validate Jesus as the one who would come. It was to, to, to take the Son and make him more dependent upon the Father. It was to do good to Jesus. And God, wanted, God was not standing in the way of Jesus trying to trip him up, wanting to see him fail. God was there cheering him on, having him, already given him the Spirit, giving him the word and the recollection of the word, empowering him through the angels who came to minister to him afterwards. God was there through the whole thing from beginning to end, wanting to see Jesus make it through. Satan, on the other hand, sought it as an opportunity to cause Jesus to stumble. And see, this is what James is saying. He's saying, you can't see it that way. Our trials are from God and they only serve one purpose and that's a good thing. He goes on further to make this argument so that we can understand that God will never tempt us. He's not against us when it comes to our trials. And, he, and he, he does that in the second part of verse 13 as he defines evil and makes this argument. For God is unable to be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. You see, biblically speaking, evil is anything that is contrary to God's person or purpose. God is here and he is, he is who he is and he, he is who he wants. You know, he has his, his character and his person and then he has his will. All that he wants to accomplish And his plans from eternity past. And God will never be tempted away from this. This is who he is. In fact, uh, imagine a person. And this person doesn't exist on this planet. But imagine a person who was the most beautiful, the smartest, the most powerful, the richest, the most happy person on the planet. Being tempted by somebody to become the fattest, dumbest, weakest, poorest, most miserable person on planet earth there would be no bite that person would never give up all that he is to become all that that he's not and that's what james is saying he's saying god is not able to be tempted by evil all that he is not is disgusting to him he is the greatest he is the best his plans are the best and he is not tempted away from any of that and for that reason he tempts no one James' logic goes this way. He says, if God is committed to who he is and what he wants, and if part of what he wants is that all people would embrace him and his will, then why would he seek to ever tempt anybody to forsake him for anything that was contrary to his person or his, or his, his purpose? You see, James is saying this is impossible. It's impossible for God to be the one in your trials who is doing you harm, who is trying to trip you up. God is for you. And James wants us to see him that way. He's the one who's taking you through the trial. He's the one who's at your, at your side at every moment. He's the one that's cheering you on to make it through and to get on the other side where you will receive blessing and victory and sanctification and growth through the whole thing. And instead of running from God in anger and in disorientation and disbelief and saying, God, why have you done this to me? Why have you put this in my life? Why did I lose my job? Why am I struggling with cancer? Why did my child... Why did we miscarry? What, what, what is going on here? Instead of running away from God and being angry with him and seeing him as some kind of, of, of enemy in your path, James is saying you need to see him as the one that is on your side and the one that you need to run to, the one that you need to run to like Jesus did in the garden, crying out to him for help, humbly depending upon him at every moment. And that's that's the first part of what James is saying. He's saying, look, don't be tempted this way. Don't blame God. Don't see Him this way. There's a second point that he wants us to understand. And that's truth number two. During times of trial, when you're being tested, your selfish desires are your biggest problem. You see, James is real clear. He's saying, guys, the trial is not your problem. God is definitely not your problem. When you're in the midst of a difficult situation, your problem lies within you are your own worst enemy. And he's saying, look, look at verse 14 and 15. He's saying, but each one, each one is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desires. The word desire there can be neutral. It can mean, it can mean, you know, a good desire or a bad desire. But here, here James is very clear. These are desires, he says, your own desires. not Meaning, not only are they From You do they originate out of you, but they don't come from God They're not from him. These are desires that are are mutually exclusive and set apart as far from God As they could be and they're sinful. They're selfish You know It really comes down to and this is what James is starting to begin to show us the real problem when we come to a trial and really, anytime, anytime any time where there's a decision to be made to either follow God or to reject Him, to forsake Him, the re- it really comes down to a battle of wills. God is saying, I have this for you. This is the best thing for you. This is what I want for you. And we're saying, no, thank you. I will go this way. It's a battle of the wills. I remember a battle of the wills when I was five years old. That's the little sweet Carlitos of 1980. Uh, 79 or 80. But I was in kindergarten... We lived in Torrance. My father, at the time, was a manager at a fast food place, Pioneer Chicken. I don't know if anybody remembers that. And uh, my mom worked part time at a flower shop, uh, who was, which was owned by my, my aunt. And I spent several, time, several days, often on, sometimes with a housekeeper. And I would call my mom at work all the time, because I just wanted to talk to her and check in with her and make, make, you know, have her make me feel okay when I was scared or, or whatever. Uh, and it became a real problem for my mom, and so she made her will known. She said to the housekeeper, "Do not let this boy call me when I'm at work." That was her will for me. That was God's will for me. But I, in my in my sin nature, said, "No, I will not accept that. I want my will. I want to be able to call my mom." And so a battle ensued over this phone, physically, as I as I fought and struggled with the uh, with the housekeeper, looking for some advantage, and I found it in a. In a, uh, in a knife block, as I pulled out the uh, the steak knife, the the, 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 the the just a huge knife, and uh, I basically just you know told the woman I'd kill her if she didn't let me call my mom, and uh, and she ran into the bathroom and locked herself in there as I as I come in, you know went went forward and calling my mom real sweetly and talking to her, I hung up and went about my business. Well, my mom finally got uh, got a phone call from this terrified woman. And uh, came home and dealt with me uh, severely. But it just goes (laughs) to show you that it's a battle of the wills. It's a battle of the wills. And, And James is saying, this is how it works. How it works is that your sinful desires, your selfish desires begin to woo you. They begin to say, come over here. Come to me. And James is using really graphic language here. In fact, he's using the picture of adultery. And he's saying, he's picturing our selfish desires as a prostitute that is saying, come over here, come be with me, leave the Lord, and, and, and let's run away together. You see, we're being tempted in those moments when, when we're in, and especially, this, is, this can be any time, but especially when God has put in our path something that he wants that is very hard for us, something that we would have never chosen for ourselves. Those are the moments when it's that battle. And, and what happens is our selfish desires begin to begin to lie to us. They, see, they, they put on clothes like a, like, like, a, like a woman would who's trying to deceive someone and they begin to lure you and, and they begin to make promises that they cannot keep and they begin to lie about God saying, come on, his ways are inferior. They're oppressive. You don't need to, to, to be experiencing that. There's a way out. Come with me. Right. And we sin when we withdraw our hearts from God and when we, give, when we give ourselves to our desires, when we give our heart to our desires, and, and it's, 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 it's indicting because according to James, everyone in this room has committed adultery against God. Every one of us in this room has committed adultery against God. The moment that you have run away with your desires and have been tempted into sin and followed your way other, versus God's, you have been guilty of forsaking God to elope and run away with your own desires. Proverbs 7 talks about this. With much seduction, or, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And that's James' second point here. He's saying, look, in the times of trial... You're your worst enemy. And you know what? Once you begin this process, once you listen to your desires instead of holding fast to whatever God has given you and put in your heart and put in your life, the minute that you do that and you run away, you begin a chain reaction. Because see, what happens is we, we sleep with our desires and there's a baby born. He says, then, verse 15, after lust has conceived, after our selfish desires have conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin when it is brought to completion, it also gives birth to or brings forth death. See, James is getting at the age-old question, where does sin come from? He's saying it comes from within. You see, before we were created, there was no sin. There was only God. But the moment that you have the Creator and you have creatures, and you have creatures who are under the Creator but who have chosen to not think the way He thinks and not act the way He wants them to act and, and, to, and to strike out outside of His will, that's the moment that that sin was born on this planet. We've seen that in Romans 5 as we've been looking at, that, at those verses. And James is, is giving us a, 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 an amazing theology lesson on where sin has come from. It's come from us. And it's that moment where we say, we will not, re- we will not accept what you have for us, Lord. We will strike out and we will rebel. We will be autonomous. You will you, We will exercise our will against yours. And James says, there is a price to pay for that. Just like the proverb says, he does not know that it will cost him his life. You see, it starts that chain reaction. First, there's sin, the exchanging of God and his will for our selfish desires. That's what it is. It's exchanging, like Romans 1 talks about the, the creator who's blessed forever in exchange for the creature, it's exchanging truth for a lie. He's saying sin is more than that. It's being opposed to God. It's saying, I will I will reject you, I will stiff arm you, and I will go this way. I will obey my will. Sin is hating him. It's saying, I don't love you after all, and I will go with this other one, and I will sleep with her, and I will be with her, and and we're done. There's there's another consequence, and that's death. It says when sin, when it is brought to completion, it gives birth. To death. You see, that's the natural, it's, it's the logical, it makes sense. If you leave God and if you, you separate yourself from Him and say, I will not receive what you or your will for me, and I will go this way, what you have done is you have separated yourself from God. You have spelled out your own death sentence. And that's what death is. It begins with spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God. And it goes to physical death, where it's the separation of the body from the soul. And eventually, if you don't deal with it in your own lifetime, it, it leads to eternal death, the separation of both the body and the soul from God forever. And it's the separation of everything he had for you, everything that he wanted to give you, and all that is in him and found in him. He, him him himself, the gift of God. You, you don't get any of that, and you're eternally separated from all of that. Proverbs 6:32 says, "He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He destroys himself. You see, we've all committed adultery when we do this and we are destroying ourselves, James says. He says, when you're in a trial and you're tempted to go the other way, when it's a job that you don't want, when it's, when it's something that you're experiencing that you don't want and you're tempted to just not go through it but go around it or run away the other way, he's saying what you've done is you've spelled out your death sentence. You see, in our trials, in our moments of difficulty, when we're encountering hard circumstances, we're going to be tempted we're going to be tempted away from God, what God wants. We're going to want to run away. We're going to want to pursue our better plan. And our desire is going to, to tempt us to abandon God. And James, here's James' point. Under, remember this. He's, he's saying, even the most difficult trial that God could give you, the most difficult thing that He could put in your path, it doesn't even compare to the pain and the suffering and the destruction that comes from following your own way, it leads to only one place and that's eternal damnation. And there's no comparison. He's saying, saying, embrace God's trials. Even the most difficult trial can't compare to trying to do it your own way. But see, James doesn't stop there. He doesn't say it's just better. He's saying, what God is giving you is actually the best thing. And that's truth number three. During times of trial... You have, to, you have to remember, you have to believe that you are experiencing God's best. You are experiencing God's best. Verse, he begins in verse 16, he says, Stop being deceived, my beloved brothers. In other words, he continues this idea of you, 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 when you're in the midst of trials, you're not understanding, you're not seeing. He's saying, stop thinking this way. Start seeing the, the trial. Start seeing God for who he is, your sin for what it is. But don't just think that God's trial is better than what you're going to, what what you could have if you. It's the best thing for you. It's it. There is no comparing it to anything. See, see, James wants us to see that not only the trial. he, He wants us to see not only the trial for the good thing that it is, but he also wants us to gaze into the heart of the giver and to see him as the greatest one, as 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 the good one that he is. And that's what he does in verse 17. He says, all good giving and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow caused by turning. any shifting shadow. See, James begins to say, look, I want you, when you're in your trials, I want you to look at the gift and begin to see what what it is. And then I want you to look up at the giver and want you to see him for who he is. And he begins with a gift. He says, all good giving And every perfect gift. First, he focuses on the act of giving, and he's saying, "Look at all of, look at God's giving. All of it is nothing but good. Every time God gives, He gives so in a way that is pure. It's of the highest quality. It's in a way that is better than anyone else could ever give. His giving is to be praised and to be valued and to be sought after. That's what James is saying. He's saying God's giving. Every time He He gives, it's nothing but good." And then he focuses on the actual gifts. He says, every perfect gift. You see, each and everything that God presents to you and to me has been custom designed for us. It is a gift that is of the highest quality and that will serve you best. So when God puts that trial in your life, when God puts that circumstance in your life, he's saying, I have custom made and packaged this, this trial just for you. And through it I am going to do amazing things. James is saying, look at the gift and be amazed at, at these gifts and the way that God gives. But not only that, look at the giver. He says, They come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow caused by turning or shifting shadow. James is saying, He is look at him. He is the source of all that is good and perfect. Look at what he gives. But not only that, look at the fact that he gives continually. He's, he's always seeking to dispense these good gifts. He says they're coming down, continually coming down from him, from the Father. And he gives as a father. He gives as a father who loves his children and can be trusted. And I know many of you ha- can look back at your childhood at gifts that you were given that at the time you're like, ah, oh, this is the last thing I wanted. This is the last thing I was looking for under the Christmas tree. But, but that they stuck with you. I know that some, for some of you, that, that's been music lessons or other things, that something that your, your parents gave you or they made you do, and it was a gift from them, and at the time you hated it, you resented it, but then years later you said, thank you for making me do that, have done that. Thank you for having given that to me. And that's the way that God gives. He gives as a father who knows his children and, and who can be totally trusted to give. Look at the rest of the passage. He says, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. He also gives as one who's sovereign. He says, I, I have the best gifts. I, I, I own everything. I have everything. I'm the Father who made the lights. I made the heavens. I made the sun, the moon and the stars. I made everything you can see. And I, I give out of my sovereignty, out of my power, out of my complete control. Also, he gives unchangeably. There's no shadow or, or there's no variation in him. You know, the sun, the moon, the stars, they're dying. They'll, they'll, ultimately, one day they will, now get, they will not give off light. But he can be trusted. He's unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he gives perfectly. He gives us one who is perfect. There is no shadow, shifting shadow in him. He is, First John 1, 5 says, he, God is light and in him there is no darkness. He is the perfect one. We, when we get gifts from him, we are getting gifts from the, 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 the perfect one. And and James is saying, see your trials from this one. See your trials as these kinds of gifts. And not only trials, but see everything that when you get a trial, when you get a circumstance that's difficult, it comes packaged with so many other things. It's not just the trial that God is giving you. He gives you numerous other gifts. He's given us his word to guide and direct us. He's given us his spirit to strengthen and uphold us. He gives us his body to encourage and to stand with us. The body of Christ so that we're not walking through these trials alone, but others are bearing our burden with us. He gives us his son to sympathize and to intercede for us. And throughout the trial, he's there walking by our side, growing us, transforming us, supplying power, doing all that he can do to see us get through it. And that's his goal, that we would walk through it and, and at the other end experience all that he has for us. MacArthur, John MacArthur listed just eight purposes in, in trials, God, what God is doing in trials. And it's, it's a great list. We could probably name many, many more. But he says, God gives us trials to test the strength of our faith, to show us how strong or how weak our faith is, and to make it an occasion for us to grow in faith and in trusting Him. He gives us trials to humble us and to keep us from self-exaltation, when, when Paul the apostle had been taken up to the third heaven and shown all these things, amazing things that no one else had ever experienced or done, God gave him a thorn in the side to humble him, to keep him humble. You see, God knew at the very moment the exact thing that Paul needed and we don't know exactly what that was but it was a trial. It was a hardship and Paul embraced it and he knew that it was doing good for him. He knew that through that trial he was being made humble and, and he was being kept from exalting himself or becoming a proud apostle. Number, number three he gives us trials to keep us from trusting in ourselves or things. We we never trust Him more than when we're in the midst of a trial. I remember when we miscarried in '09; was our, it was going to be our fourth child, and shortly after that, we went in for ultrasounds. And I remember the doctor or the technician looking at the ultrasound. And I could they're not supposed to say things, but I could tell that something looked really wrong. And and the doctor was called in, and he told us about uh, just this ovary that didn't look good uh, in my wife's body. And and immediately I went home, and I I, I started thinking the worst. I started thinking, okay, this ovarian cancer, Lord, you're going to take my wife away. Lord, please don't do this. And I got on my face before God, and I just started crying, crying like I've never cried before. And I I, I was just, Lord, please don't take her. Please don't take her now. And I, I just cried to the Lord. I entrusted her and I entrusted myself, even our children to him. And I said, please, Lord, do I know you're good and I know you'll do what you want, but, but, and I will, I will trust you, but please don't do this. And, 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 and it's to during those times of trial that God says, I, I will get a hold of you and I will, I will turn your face to me and I will grow you in your ability to trust me and to depend on me and in nothing else but me. I will be your God during these trials. There's a fourth reason he says he gives us trials to cause us to hope for and to long for eternity. And I know Brian is longing for eternity. But he gives us trials so that we'll see that that our hope and our joy and our purpose for living won't be in this here and now, but that it will be ultimately to be with him forever. He gives us trials, number five, to reveal what we really love, to show what the idols of our hearts are so that we can forsake them, that we can put them away. He gives us trials, number six, to teach us to value God's blessings. You know, when everything's going well and everything's good, you take everything for granted. And God says, as, he, as, he, as, I, as I give you trials, you're going to begin to value me and to value what I, I've given you like you've never done it before. Number seven, he gives us trials to develop enduring strength for greater usefulness. You see, he's on a journey. He's, he says, when I, when, I brought you, when I brought you forth, when I brought you into salvation, you were a baby. And I've fathered you and part of, me is, part of my job is to raise you up, to grow you, to be a servant of mine, to be useful to me. We, we, we raise our children to be useful for society and to serve the Lord. And that's what the Lord is doing to us as, as our father. He's raising us up to be useful, to serve him, to enjoy him. Number eight, he gives us trials to enable us to better help others in their trials. There are things that you, that some of you are going through right now in this room that are so difficult that you would have never chosen that you're bearing, that, that one day others in this room, whether it's a matter of a week or six months or five years from now, will also go through. And God, in packaging these perfect gifts, He's going to put you in their package. And He's going to give all of that to that person, your brother or sister. And because you've gone through this trial, because you've experienced the pain and the, and the struggle that you're experiencing right now, you're going to be able to be used by the Lord to help another brother or sister. And there's many more that we could think of. But God is doing amazing things through these trials. He's, he's giving us these gifts that we would have never wanted on our own. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, who was married to Jim Elliot, who, who was killed uh, by Indians. He was a missionary that along with other men were killed. They had been married 20, 27 months or so when they went down, and, or when he died. Newlyweds, going to serve the Lord in another country. And God takes away this woman's husband. He he, he puts this this trial in her life, he says, I, I'm going to give you a gift and it's going to be widowhood. I'm going to make you a widow. And Look what she says. She says, I don't know any more accurate way of putting it than to say that he had given me something. He had given me a gift, widowhood. How can I say such a thing? In his death, Jesus Christ gave us life. Thus, the worst thing that ever happened became the best thing that ever happened. It can happen with us at the cross of Jesus. Our crosses are changed into gifts. You see, Elizabeth Elliot understood that what she was receiving wasn't a God who was her enemy. It wasn't something that she should run away from. It was something that, although it was very, very, very difficult, was something that was going to serve a purpose in her life. It was the best thing that God could give her. And that's what James wants us to see when we're looking at this section of scripture, he says, be convinced brothers and sisters that when you get that trial, when you get that circumstance, that difficulty, it is the best thing that God could ever give you in that moment. And anything else could not compare. There's a fourth, final point that he makes in verse 18. During times of trial, God wants us to remember, he wants you to remember that you have been made part of God's amazing plan. You've been made a part of God's amazing plan. Look at verse 18. He says, Having willed it, he brought us forth by means of the word of truth in order that we might be a kind of first fruits from among his creatures. You see, God, God could have totally left us in the mess that we had made. The moment that we had chose our desire, our plan, and we initiated that, and and, and we brought forth sin and death, God could have said, you've gotten what you wanted. You can have what you want. You can take off and go and, and, and experience the sin throughout your life and then ultimately end up receiving the full weight of death as, as, as your punishment. That's what you wanted, isn't it? But see, God doesn't do that. He, he doesn't do that to, to those who He is saving, to, to us who have experienced the gospel. He says, No, you know what I'm going to do, actually? I, I know you had a plan, and we, are, we both know where that led. But understand this I have a plan. God is saying. Having willed it, James says, having willed it, having planned this out, this is God's plan. God says, I have had a plan from eternity past and my plan is way better than yours. In fact, my plan is awesome and it includes taking all that you've done with your plan and all that you've messed up and fixing it all. In fact, your plan brought death, but my plan of which I've made you a part has brought you forth from death and made you born again. He says, He's brought us forth, and that points to regeneration, to being born again, to salvation. He said, I had a plan, and it it wasn't to leave you in your plan. My plan was to actually, while you were running away towards what you wanted, my plan was to take you and bring you back and to actually give you all that I had in my plan. And my plan is so amazing. My will is so amazing. And I'm not going to let you just take off and, 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 and experience all of that mass and destruction and death. I'm going to save you from your plan. And from your ways. And I'm going to plant you in my plan that is so big. It's bigger than anything you can imagine. It's bigger than you. And he says, and I did all this through the gospel. You see, James wants us firmly planted at the foot of the cross. Looking at how all of this came to be. He says, it, this was all by means of the word of truth, the gospel. He says, God is saying through the gospel. You want, to see the, you want to see my heart? You want to see my plan? Then look at the cross. Look at Jesus. Look what I've done there. Look at my plan. Look, look at what I've devised in my plan, I, 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 I took my son and I made him endure the greatest trial that anyone has ever endured so that I could give you the greatest gift that you've ever experienced, eternal life. He goes on and says why he's done this. He says, in order that we might be a kind of first fruits from among his creatures. You see, in, in Israel, the, the, the first fruits was the first and the best part of the produce of the crops for that year. And it was set aside and it was dedicated to the Lord. And it served also to point to God's faithfulness that this was only the first installment of more to come that God would give. And and James is saying, you all, having been brought forth, you brought forth death, but God brought you forth. And having brought you forth, he did that so that you would be a kind of first fruits. Which means that we've been dedicated to God. God has set us apart. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will bring you to myself and you will experience all of my glory and enjoy me forever. That's part of my plan. But not only that, as a firstfruits, we're being made into the jewel of his creation. He's saying, so we might be a firstfruits from among his creatures or his creation. God is saying, I'm going to make you the best, the, the first fruits. He's saying, you, that's what you weren't when I found you. But I am going to take you and I'm going to transform you. And I'm I'm going to regenerate you and sanctify you and one day I'm going to glorify you to where in eternity you will never again struggle. In in your nature, all your thoughts and all your speech and all your actions will be be focused on nothing but doing what I want. There will be your will no more and you will desire only what I want. And forever you will, out of your own nature, you will seek to honor me and do what I say and, and enjoy eternity with me. He says, I'm doing that through trials and through my grace as I transform you. And lastly, as a first fruits, he says, we are the first installment of an amazing renewal that will take place. You see, God isn't just fixing us as humans that are messed up. He's saying, look, all that you messed up, when Adam sinned and you guys, sit, you, you, you polluted my whole creation. But what I'm doing in my plan is I'm fixing it all and I'm redoing it all. I think of Revelation 21. and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God said, That's my plan. I'm going to fix everything. And one day there will be no more trials. I will remove all crying and suffering and pain. And James is, is saying, as a first fruits, realize that you're you're the first installment of all that God's going to make right. And one day even though you're experiencing trials right now and they're difficult and they're painful, see them from God's perspective that in light of His plan and in light of eternity, they are tiny, they are momentary light afflictions. James is calling us in our moments of crisis when we're smack dab in the middle of difficult circumstances, when we're bearing a trial that we think is going to break us, he's calling us to remember the gospel. of of your faith being more genuine, more precious than gold and silver that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As the ushers come forward to receive our offering, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that that we thank you for this passage. We thank you for James' message. His encouragement to us to make sense of trials, to understand them, so that we might embrace them. We thank you, Lord, that you are not our enemy. That in the midst of trials, you are there to cheer us on. You're there to see us through. You're only giving us trials for our good. We thank you that you've shown us who the real enemy is. But in that, that we have the power through the Holy Spirit to choose to say no to our selfish desires and to to choose you. Thank you, Lord, that that you not only give us things that are okay, but you give us the best. And in every moment that we, that we are in trial, we are experiencing the greatest gift that we could be experiencing. And we thank you that it's part of an amazing plan that, that by means of the gospel, you have brought us forth and that one day there will be no more trials, that one day that we will stand before you in eternity, we'll enjoy your presence forever, we'll rejoice and look back at all that you accomplished in and through us in our trials, Lord. Lord, give us the grace to see trials this way. Lord, give us the power to embrace them. Give us the wisdom to, to remember these things in the midst of hard, hard circumstances. And I know that many of us here are enduring very difficult things, Lord. Give us grace. Give us grace to endure. Give us that way of escape so that we might bear up under them. We pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the gospel by which you brought us forth. We thank you that we've been made new. That your plan squashed our plan. That you didn't let us go off into ruin, but you saved us, you turned us around. And we give you thanks for all of these things, Lord. We just pray for my brothers and sisters and for me, Lord, that we would embrace this. This is hard truth. This is not what we would do in our flesh. But I know that that your goal is that we go through trials, not around them or run away from them. Lord, you're a good giver and your gifts are perfect. Help us to receive them with thanksgiving, opening up these packages and embracing all that you have for us. We give you thanks for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.